Hello and welcome to this week's Times Will Tell podcast. This is the weekly Times of Israel podcast, and I am Laser Berman, the diplomatic correspondent at the Times of Israel. But today, I am coming to you wearing my other hat, that of the Christian Affairs correspondent at the Times of Israel. And I am doing that because I am here today with a very unique guest, a very special man, Bishop Dr. Glenn Plummer. Now, by way of introduction, Bishop Plummer is 66 years old. He's the father of eight children and has five grandkids. He is a minister, a pastor, and recently a bishop in the Pentecostal Church of God in Christ. Now, a minister is someone who is licensed to preach the Bible, to preach the gospel. A pastor is an overseer of a congregation, and Bishop Plummer has had a congregation in the Detroit area for two decades. And a bishop is someone who oversees pastors, and Bishop Plummer is a unique bishop in his church because in 2019, he was appointed as the first bishop of Israel, and we'll speak about that and what it means. Now, just a couple words about what it, the Pentecostal movement is and what it means to be a Pentecostal uh, minister. Pentecostal refers to initially the Jewish holiday of Shavuot or the Pentecost. And in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there is a story of Jesus's Jewish followers at the time who began speaking in the language of the multitude of people in Jerusalem and were able to preach to them in languages they did not know. That became known as the Pentecostal experience. In 1906 in California on Azusa Street, there was a black preacher with other uh, friends and colleagues of him who had a similar experience. They began speaking in tongues and languages they did not know, and that is seen as the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. Initially, it was a movement that feet, that had uh, black Americans and white Americans worshiping together, but that, given the racial segregation of the time, ended up splitting into different movements. One of the major movements and an early movement was the Church of God in Christ, which today is still a predominantly black church, though it has uh, followers around the world of all races, and there are almost nine million adherents. So it is a major, major American church and a leading black church in the United States and the world. So Bishop Plummer, thank you for being here with us. Yeah, well, thank you, Laser, for the invitation to come be with you. It's my honor, and so look forward to our talk. This is fascinating that um, a major American and international church has appointed its first bishop of Israel. What does that mean? There's no, I would assume there's no congregation, no church here um, from the Church of God in Christ in Israel. So what it is, what is it that you are mandated to do, and, and what are you um, trying to accomplish here as bishop in Israel? Yeah, and 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 so you, you rightly uh, distinguish the title bishop of Israel, which is a pretty grandiose statement if you really think about it. Okay, uh, uh, and 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 the Roman Catholic Church, who has been here, let's let's argue a thousand years. Okay. They certainly have been here longer than the state of Israel, 73 years, okay? So, no so, so they have never had a bishop of Israel. Isn't that fascinating? They've never appointed, because they see the title bishop of Israel in political terms. They would not touch the title bishop of Israel uh, because they felt that is giving over to the um, right for Israel to exist. The very uh, statement uh, of Israel at, in the title of the Bishop of Israel uh, means that there's an acknowledgement that Israel sh- has the right and responsibility. Uh, and we believe that. 
We believe Israel has the right to exist. We believe Israel has a right to defend itself. We believe Israel has the responsibility to watch over the land, which is a whole nother discussion rather than just the right to exist. You have the, you have the responsibility before the Lord to, to, to steward this land, to, to, to guard this land, and as well the people, not just the Jewish people, but also the Arabic people. Who are, who are citizens of Israel. You, you, as Israel, have the responsibility to c- protect and defend Christians who are here as well. Not just Jews, not just Arabs, but also Christians. Uh, and so uh, for us to, to distinguish the Bishop of Israel, it's a, it's a statement in and of itself. Uh, and, and so my responsibility is to come here and to embrace Israel, Israel on behalf of the largest black church in America. So we come here and uh, and to our our surprise, and, and and I had been coming here for probably twenty five years. I'm probably, if not the, certainly among the top African American, um, pro Israel, Christian Zionist leaders in America. Okay, and so I've been coming here. I've been leading uh, thousands of people to come here uh, on uh, pilgrimages here, and so for me to be uh, selected in and of itself was very uh, uh, telling. Uh, uh, But then to come here and then to be met with the kind of uh, uh, ostracizing voices that I was met with when I came here, it was a bit shocking. Can you expand on those ostracizing voices, what what that means and, and what happened? Wow. It was really, if you want to know the truth, only a couple of people who, 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 uh, some rabbi who's an extreme, who, who I don't know any, uh, uh, orthodox, all, even ultra orthodox, uh, uh, groups who embrace this particular individual. Uh, I didn't know who he is. I never heard him before in my life. Uh, he made, uh, he took some videos of mine. I'm a Christian broadcaster. I led the National Religious Broadcast. I've been the chairman and CEO of the National Religious Broadcast, the NRB, the leading evangelical organization in, in America, by the way, that, that uh, embraces and, and has housed all of the various evangelical groups, the NRB. I was the chairman and CEO. And, 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 so I've been on, th- I hosted daily television for years. So I probably have thousands of videos out, you know, that I've done. This fellow takes a couple of statements compl- and, 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 and edits them to say something I, I have never said. Somehow he got into the country and he didn't like just come as a tourist. He moved here and was given some sort of residency. What is very striking is he came here announcing that he was going to convert Jews to Christianity. He's going to baptize the people here in Israel. In fact, one of the reasons he gave for coming to Israel rather than broadcasting from the United States is that you've got to touch, you've got to feel, you've got to have contact with the people you're baptizing. That's what he came here to say. They make these videos calling me the missionary bishop. Uh, they use the phrase missionary. And in, and in Christian circles, Christians think that's a, like a good statement. Okay. Uh, in, 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 in Israel, that's like, that's like calling me a rapist. I mean, that's like, it's, it's a terrible um, uh, statement to be made 
of anybody in Israel. And so he made, that's who made the, the statements. And then he sent, he, they made a little video and sent it to Ari Derry, sent it to a number of leaders, uh, the, the prime minister at the time, uh, and the heads of a number of uh, ministries here, uh, that these people have come here to convert Ethiopians. These people have come here to convert uh, Jews and they should be kicked out of the country. Now, what I didn't know at the time, you know, we had been planning on coming prior, like 2019, we were planning on coming. I came here in January of 2020 to look for a home, look for headquarters for our facility. We're all excited. We were working with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And, uh, and so we had targeted May as actually the month that we were coming. Uh, but uh, uh, COVID hit in March. And so we couldn't come and you know, it, it threw the world into a tizzy. Well, what I didn't know at the time, yeah, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Gabi Ashkenazi, and the Minister of Interior, Ari Deary, had a conference yeah. call. They had a conference call regarding us uh, and whether or not they should allow us to come in. And they both agreed they, sh- they can come in. And I got a letter. Now, I didn't know at the time who Ari Deary was. I did not know that he had to approve and he has like, you know, the Minister of Interior has ultimate authority <laughs> over whoever comes into the country. I didn't know that at the time. Uh, I just received our letter from uh, the uh, the uh, um, Foreign Affairs who said, you have two weeks to come. Wow. <laughs> In like all, the end of August, you have two weeks to come. We weren't even packed yet. We, you know, we, we had to um, pack our home. We had to, and so within one week, we were here. We came, of course, we were allowed in. We came to our home, which we have, have a home here in Mevisera. And as soon as all this nonsense uh, that the rabbi was putting out, and then a couple of uh, uh, media reports and newspapers, Haaretz did a story, and a couple other more extreme uh, publications did some stories on us and said, you know, these the, they, they've come here to, to, to convert the Jews. And so it just was, people were just screaming, okay, like, and how could they come in here? And uh, we began getting threat, death threats, okay, uh, from uh, people who were just, you know, they took what these people said. Mr. Deary himself approved us coming in here. And then when all the noise started, uh, and it was a very political moment for 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 the Shas party because uh, and it was a very political moment for the then um, uh, prime minister. It was in the election cycle. Yep, and it was only a couple of months before they they decided we were a political liability, and uh, they backed off and and basically sent the message to our our to diplomats in the United States that we needed to leave. In February, I received a call from my presiding bishop uh, at the time, who in consultation with U.S. senators said, we need to airlift them out of there. That led to a very significant discussion, and I convinced them, look, I've been quiet. We're not going to respond to this nonsense, okay, uh, uh, number one. Number two, um, Mr. Deary, uh, you know, and his uh, people um, are are under enormous fire uh, from their uh, constituents uh, over anything and everything, and they've kind of thrown us into the mix of it. Let's just be quiet. I think, and I've been told and counseled by 
uh, very well-meaning people here in Israel, it'll all blow over. And this this rap, this extreme rabbi, nobody knows him, number one. Number two, Deary may not even be uh, over the the, the uh, uh, interior, uh, interior anymore. And even Bibi may not even be the prime minister. So let's just be still. And uh, and that's that was our de- uh, decision. We remained here. Uh, uh, our leadership uh, uh, agreed with it. And uh, and and look what happened. Okay. Indeed. I guess let's start with just a little bit briefly about yourself and and what you're what you're up to um, here in Israel and how you find yourself where you are today. I am a minister of the gospel. And I have been for over 40 years. Uh, I'm a pastor as well. Uh, and there, I know uh, your Jewish uh, audience may not know the difference between a minister, a pastor, and a bishop. Uh, but I've been, I've been a, I've been a minister. Uh, I was licensed to the ministry uh, in 1979. Uh, I was uh, and and ordained uh, at that time as well. Um, then I was in. Then I became a pastor. Uh, so a minister is just a licensed person who has, you know, the responsibility to uh, to uh, preach the Bible and uh, to preach the gospel and so forth. Um, a pastor is an overseer of a congregation, uh, and so a minister does not have to be uh, a an over. In fact, uh, a, a pastor has to be a minister, but a minister does not have to be a pastor. And so uh, a a pastor, I've pastored now for uh, twenty two years uh, in the Detroit area, and uh, and then a bishop is the overseer of pastors. And so, uh, and so as a bishop, I was consecrated as a bishop two years ago. So thank you for that uh, explanation. I think uh, many of our listeners will, will appreciate that, and it's very clear. Can you explain to me what Pentecostal means? I mean, I think some people have this image of in the South uh, speaking in tongues and, and handling snakes. What is the Pentecostal Church? I'm sure it's it's something that's much uh, deeper and much more profound than that. But let's let our listeners get a, a deeper understanding of, of what the Pentecostal Church is and why it's been such a force in American Christianity and increasingly around the world. Well, first of all, let me tell you what it's not. Uh, it is not the handling of snakes, as you mentioned, even though there may be some off-brand and offshoot uh, groups of folks who may do that. I, frankly, I don't know uh, any of those people. They're certainly not a part of our church. Um, it really uh, goes to, uh, uh, in the uh, Jewish world, Shavuot. And so the the actual day of Pentecost, uh, uh, and, and I think uh, Shavuot, if I understand it from a Jewish perspective, is uh, celebrating the giving of the Torah to Moses. And it just so happened that during uh, the celebration of Shavuot or Pentecost 2,000 years ago, uh, the Jewish believers at that time who had been following Jesus were in Jerusalem up in this room and uh, they had this experience where uh, they began to speak in another language that they each didn't understand. And at the time, Jewish uh, people from around the world who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Shavuot. And so these people who were locked up in this room, the followers of, of Jesus or Yeshua, went out 
of the room into the street, according to our our Bible, and began to just speak the praises of the Lord uh, in the various languages of the different people who were just in Jerusalem at that time. And that became known as, in our faith, the Pentecostal experience. Uh, So that comes from the book of Acts. And so what happened in the United States over a hundred odd years ago, actually in 19, I think it was 1906, uh, in California, uh, of all places, a, 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 a street called Azusa, Azusa Street. And there were black Americans. Uh, they were, it came out of slavery some 35, 40 odd years prior. And they had this very similar experience. They also began to speak in this unknown language, and we refer to that as a Pentecostal uh, movement began at that time. And because racism was so prevalent uh, in the United States at that time, it was unknown, for example, white Christians and black Christians to worship and celebrate together. But what happened is the experience that was predominantly from African Americans at that time was heard by people in Canada, people in other countries, whites around America, and they all came and kind of flooded into this uh, Azusa Street revival, as it was called at the time. And that became the beginning of what's called the Pentecostal movement. Now, the Pentecostal movement has since grown to every country uh, around the world. uh, And um, our church, the Church of God in Christ, our founder came out of that movement. He had both blacks and whites. Now think of it. This is 1907, 1908. So the next seven years, there were blacks and whites worshiping together. And what tied them together was this experience called the Pentecostal experience. Uh, the white uh, believers came to Bishop Mason because of the pressure put on them by the racism of that day, it was segregation was a law of the land, and they asked if, if he would allow them to go to Arkansas and start a new church called the Assemblies of God, which is the largest white Pentecostal church. So they came out of us. So the split, so their doctrine, their, their uh, you know, s- social issues and so forth are all identical to the Church of God in Christ. The only difference is they're white and we're black. Mm-hmm. What is the relationship today between the, the white Pentecostal churches and the predominantly black ones? Is there an effort to uh, rejoin them or some ecumenical effort um, in the movement? Well, I, I wouldn't say to rejoin them. I, I think the, the proper way is for them to rejoin us and since they came from us. Uh, we, have, we have good relationships with them, um, but we have not formally reconnected. Uh, they did ask for forgiveness just a few years ago for, so we're 114 years old now and, uh, and, uh, and they're 107. So they're, they're always like seven years uh, younger than we are. And so uh, they did uh, come to uh, the church of God in Christ a few years ago and ask for forgiveness and, uh, you know, for leaving because of racial reasons. But there's been no formal reconnect of the two. Uh, we honor each other. We love each other. Uh, we're just uh, uh, two different organizations at this point. Can you briefly say something about what doctrines or beliefs make the Pentecostal movement distinct from other um, Protestant movements that have grown up in America, like Baptists, like the Methodists? What would uh, look different in a worship service, or what is different about doctrine 
Um, you know, just briefly for our, our listeners. Yeah, and, and and if I and if I can, maybe I can couple that with the definition of evangelicalism. Sure. Because I know that you wanted to talk about evangelicals. Uh, and so let me distinguish evangelicals, first of all, because uh, in in Israel, it has been my observation that Israelis kind of see evangelicals as white, American, and Republican conservative. Okay? And so, um, and that is like totally wrong. It is 100% wrong. So, for example, the largest evangelical church in the world has been in Korea. And by the way, it was from the Assemblies of God who came out of us. And so the largest church is not American, not white, uh, not Republican, not conservative. Uh, The largest evangelical church is Korean. And one of the other largest evangelical churches is in Africa, uh, in Nigeria. And another one in Ghana. And so they're not white. They're not American. They're not Republican. And so this political definition of evangelical is really uh, wrong. It is uh, unfounded. And it's a redefinition of what evangelical is. Here are the distinctives of evangelical. Number one, evangelicals believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and the promised Messiah. So that is consistent with just about every Christian denomination. Uh, However, it distinguishes us from Judaism, for example. Uh, Number two, evangelicals believe that the 66 books of the Bible are the Word of God. That distinguishes us from the Roman Catholic Church. They have 70 books. We have 66. So evangelicals believe that the 66 books are the Word of God. Uh, Third, evangelicals believe that you must be born again. Uh, that distinguishes us from, you know, mainline, uh, old-line Protestant denominations like the Anglicans, like the uh, Methodists, like the Lutherans. Uh, they don't necessarily hold to, you must be born again. So those are kind of the three big distinguishing features of evangelicals. It is, it is a, a religious, a, a spiritual uh, identity as opposed to a political one. And so when you look at the Pentecostals, Pentecostals are evangelical. So Pentecostals are evangelical. The real distinctive about about Pentecostals to the broader evangelical is the this uh, speaking in tongues. Uh, that's probably the, na- the main uh, a, a division is uh, this experience of speaking in tongues and then uh, and then hold into some other lesser distinctives like, uh, you know, uh, supernatural healings. They, you know, uh, Pentecostals believe in supernatural healings. Um, but I think the biggest distinction is, because I think evangelicals would say, well, we believe in supernatural healings. I think the biggest distinction is speaking in tongues. I think that's that's probably the biggest one. Mm-hmm. So living in Israel and being part of the Jewish community, I often hear from people that don't necessarily, that have not necessarily spoken to evangelical supporters of Israel, that the reason that evangelical support Israel is because they have this, some nefarious plan to bring Jews to Israel so that they will all convert and bring around, bring about the end of days. Um, can you respond to that? Have you heard that, that narrative before? And bro- more broadly, why do evangelicals support Israel? In the Hebrew Bible, when God is having this conversation with uh, Abraham, uh, and he says, uh, 
you know, basically, and this is kind of a, a uh, I'm not reading exactly, but what it says is those who support you or your descendants or Israelis or uh, Jewish people, I will bless them. And those who curse you or curse your descendants or curse uh, Israelis, I will curse them. And so just simple understanding is, why would I put myself in a position to be cursed by God when he says, bless these people and I will bless you. You curse these people and I will curse you. So I think that's the first order of why um, Christians in general, evangelicals in particular, uh, support and bless Israel. Uh, There's so many biblical mandates for blessing the people of the Bible, blessing um, uh, uh, Jews, Uh, not to mention that all of the early uh, patriarchs of our faith, of the Christian faith, were Jewish, not, and not the least of which is Jesus himself, who was also Jewish. And so the whole foundation of Christianity comes out of Judaism. And so it would just not make sense uh, to, 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 to uh, curse uh, or to speak ill of uh, Jewish people, because that's actually where our faith comes from. And so uh, it's, a, it's a biblical uh, mandate. And we identify with the Judeo-Christian scripture. We identify with the Judeo-Christian philosophy. And so because of that, we choose to bless Jewish people in general and Israel in particular. So for our Jewish listeners, that, that verse is Genesis or Breshit 12.3, Yud Bet Gimel um, from Parshat Lech Lecha. So um, that's the, the verse that the bishop was referring to. Now, a question Building on on what you have said about Christian support for Israel, why is it that throughout, in your opinion, throughout much of of history since um, the last 2,000 years, much of the encounter between Christian churches and Jews has been negative, has been one of anti-Semitism, an attempt to convert Jews? Um, where has that come from, and why do you see? Why does your church and other evangelicals see the relationship with Jews differently? Our book is is the Hebrew Bible and now the New Testament as well. And so we are distinguished and distinctive from uh, the Catholic Church. And for that matter, even Martin Luther, uh, who who broke, he, he really was responsible for the breaking away of what we call the Protestants from the Roman Catholic Church to begin with, uh, he was really, in my opinion, anti-Semitic as well, uh, because it was just kind of inbred in. He was a German. He was a German uh, Catholic uh, priest, and uh, and so you know uh, he had some flaws, and one of them was his position on the Jews. Uh, we have, as as believers, as Christian believers, grown up, if you will, and we've matured, and we have an understanding uh, uh, very different than Martin Luther did, very different than the Roman Catholics uh, uh, do and uh, and did. And so that's why we are very distinctive and very supportive of Israel, and not to mention just practically speaking, just practically speaking, okay? It is a democratic nation in a, in a, in a virtual non-democratic Middle Eastern world. Uh, uh, you know, it is, uh, uh, there's so many reasons why it just makes sense to be supportive of the Jewish people. Uh, and as an African-American, our history is very connected with Jewish people in the United States. And so uh, when, when even white evangelicals would not stand with us during the civil rights movement, 
Jews did. And so there's a special place in our heart as black evangelicals uh, in standing with Jewish people in general and, and, and Israel in particular because we have slavery in our DNA. We're only 150 years, 158 years removed from slavery. And, and we look at, at Israel, Israel still uh, acknowledges their slavery 3,500 years later, they're still talking about it, Avadim Hayenu, uh, Jews are still every Shabbat saying something about, you know, we were brought out of, out of slavery. And some Orthodox Jews say it every day uh, that uh, they acknowledge uh, their deliverance uh, from slavery in Egypt. And so that means something to us. Maybe God may use the children of some slaves to talk to some other slaves and tell them we were slaves too, but the Lord brought us out and we are now free ourselves. Who knows? We have work to do. It's time to go to work in Israel. God bless you. Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. So there's certainly very powerful reasons that would point to a very tight uh, black-Jewish connection and alliance in the United States, first of all. But it seems like in recent years, uh, that alliance is not what it could be. It's certainly you don't see the scenes that you saw in the 1960s of, of real public brotherhood uh, between the two communities. Do you think that the American Jewish community currently today um, understands um, the reality of black Americans, do you think that they are doing what they can to fully realize this potential? I know there's a lot of desire to find a way to fully realize this relationship, but it seems like, at least uh, in recent years, there's something missing. That's the sense that I'm getting. I'd love to hear your reaction on that. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree in general, but uh, what I have seen, uh, we're from Detroit, and uh, I'm part of uh, the founding uh, uh, board of the Coalition for Black and Jewish Unity. It's half Jews and half Blacks, okay? And so um, we, I don't think it's as bad as what some folks think that the relationship between the Jewish community and the Black community is. It's much better than I think most people think it is. However, when you go back to the days that you spoke about during civil rights, uh, there were three groups in Black America at that time. 
if I had to generalize. One was the black church, and they were led by pastors, not just ministers. You know, Jesse Jackson, for example, is a minister. He's never been a pastor. Al Sharpton, a minister, never been a pastor. And Jesse was part, he was one of the, he was a 20, he was 27 years old at the time that Dr. Martin Luther King came to our church and gave his last uh, speech called the mountaintop speech. He gave that at our church. And then he was assassinated right after that. Uh, uh, My point is that the black church was one of the three groups, much the largest group. And Dr. King kind of embodied the leadership of the black church in that day. Then there were the black Muslims. uh, Louis Farrakhan is now the successor, but at that time it was Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X. They totally rejected the Judeo-Christian Bible, the Judeo-Christian foundations, uh, and they embraced Islam, but it was kind of a strange and weird um, mixture of a bunch of things. It's not Orthodox Islam as as the nation of Islam is today. And then the third group is what I would call the intellectuals. These at, at, at that time were um, the Black Panthers groups. You know, these were people who said, let's take up arms. These were people who were willing to, 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 to fight. And, and Dr. King was totally philo- philosophically against that. What he said was uh, uh, nonviolence was the approach to changing, uh, you know, the condition of our nation at that time. And so black America really followed the black church and followed Dr. King. Yes, there were some other people in those other two groups. And I would argue that that third group was a secular group. They weren't Muslim. They really did not embrace the black church. They are that same group that really kind of took the microphone. Uh, They were much more, after Dr. King was killed, you know, there were other people who from that third group who uh, ran for political office and won um, that same group, these more secular, what I call intellectuals became professors. They were not even allowed to be students in certain uh, uh, universities. Then they became professors. They became academicians. Some even became, uh, you know, the presidents of some universities. And so this smaller, much smaller group of people really were much more, um, dominant in their in their uh, uh, addresses of uh, the nation, whereas the black church continued to do what we've all always done. We lived with the people, we pastored and led the people. Every week we met with the people, whereas the other people got on television. The other people were much more, if I can use the word, they were much more sexy to the media. So you know, the media would run to people who were making a lot of loud noise. It would run to the people who were making outlandish statements. Uh, and if you even follow the, the the history of the BDS movement in Black America or BDS movement in general, uh, these are people on college campuses. These are people who are I would call the intellectuals who would make make intellectual arguments, not biblical arguments, uh, against Israel or the Jewish people. And so I think a lot of that was woven into the fabric of kind of the the parting of the ways between American Jews and black Americans uh, with new laws. Uh, uh, many of our people ran for office and won. Uh, and so you have these, these intellectuals, really, not the black church leadership, who became Congress people. Uh, and f- frankly, who is now the vice president or uh, uh, Mr. Obama, who we love and, 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 and supported, but 
he was not a product of the black church, nor is uh, uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, they're not products of the black church. Uh, they're not leaders in the black church. And so they're really kind of part of this third group. And because they're so so kind of loud, if I, and I say that word kindly, uh, they're kind of so loud in, in, their, in their posture, um, the media has chosen, you guys, for example, have chosen to kind of give them a lot of uh, uh, time as opposed to the black church. The black church has been supportive of Israel. The black church has been supportive of the uh, Amer- uh, black and Jewish relationship, uh, and particularly the black evangelical church, black Protestant church. So you, you referenced um, Jesse Jackson, Reverend, Reverend Al Sharpton. I assume you're uh, referring to them as products of the black church, but um, you know, especially Al Sharpton, he's, he's had some very problematic statements and uh, toward, toward Jews in general in New York and and toward Israel. So there seems to be some current of of um, you know a different type of relationship toward toward Israel and to the Jewish people within the church. Unless unless I'm misunderstanding um, how you're characterizing it, I did not say, and I nor do I believe that they're products of the black church. Um, uh, they've they've not they've never pastored they've never even pastored okay uh, and they've never been a leader in the church neither one of these two gentlemen okay and so what I'm saying is that uh, now they both are ministers they both have reverend in their title so somebody licensed them back when who I don't know who but uh, you know they they're not part of our church uh, and and we have very distinctive uh, people that are members of the Church of God in Christ, our particular church. Now, we're the largest black church in America, but we're not the only. There are many other churches. Uh, but I'm just, I'm saying to you that I'm not aware that uh, Al or Jesse, and and I respect both of them. Don't misunderstand. I respect them both. Okay, I don't agree with some of the positions that, that they take, and I don't think that the black, I don't think they articulate positions, um, uh, biblical positions that the black church has embraced. Uh, now, when it comes to issues of racism, when it comes to issues of justice, we do embrace that. And we do agree that justice, and, and so does, by the way, the American Jewish community, uh, by and large, uh, hold fast to justice and hold fast to um, uh, righteousness and hold fast to what is right and what is just. Uh, so, so, but I just want to be clear. No, I'm not saying that they're products of the black church. Uh, to, to the contrary, have have individuals that have come out of the black church um, entered politics? Are there any political leaders today uh, that you feel have really grown out of the church and, and are representing your worldview? I, I think that, um, for example, the pastor of Dr. King's church, who just became uh, a congressman in Georgia, uh, he was a pastor. And so, uh, and 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 there have been many who have, I think, misinterpreted some of his positions as it relates to Israel. For example, um, uh, I would, I don't know what his formal position is on Israel as a congressman now, but I do know that uh, you know he has been, from a biblical perspective, pro-Israel, uh, and I think he probably would still call himself pro-Israel. Uh, I don't know. You'd have to ask him that. I don't speak for him, but. You know, here's an example of a pastor, and which is very rare uh, to be elected to Congress. Very rare for a pastor to be elected. 
a black pastor to be elected to Congress, and for that matter, a white pastor to be elected to Congress. It's it's just a very rare occurrence. Interesting. So speaking about the modern struggle for justice and, and civil rights, and um, obviously one of the movements that has become very prominent in the past uh, two years is the Black Lives Matter movement. And there's been Jewish organizations that have openly supported it, usually on the more liberal side. And there's been some worry about it that there's many anti-Israel voices, that there's no room within the movement um, to see Jewish suffering or Jews as victims. So I'd love to hear your take and your experience with Black Lives Matters, Matter movement and, and how that um, relates to black Jewish relations in the United States. Yeah. I, well, first of all, let's distinguish Black Lives Matter organization from the Black Lives Matter movement. And many people don't see the difference. And there's a there's a remarkable difference between the actual organization, which we uh, almost condemn. Uh, you want to know the truth? Uh, the organization, the the movement we embrace, because the movement really is just a statement about black people. It's a statement that says black lives actually matter. Our, we we matter. Our young people matter. Our young men matter. I'm the father of 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 black sons. My sons matter. Uh, my daughters matter. And so that's what we're saying. As a matter of fact, you know, I personally had never been uh, in a in a in a uh, protest march until the summer of 2020, uh, and I went with an Orthodox rabbi and with the governor of Michigan, and with the mayor of Detroit. And we all marched together down Woodward, which is kind of the main big street in Detroit. And we all marched down together, Jews and Gentiles, uh, uh, politicians, and those of us who are clergy. And we all march together to say, yes, black lives do matter. And so the movement itself has been embraced not just by uh, liberal you know, left-wing Jews, I just told you, I march with, I personally march with an Orthodox rabbi. Orthodox rabbi, okay, and and uh, down Woodward Avenue while we were with, marching with the governor, who's a, who's a Democrat, and marching uh, uh, with the, the mayor of Detroit and other politicians and other clergy uh, leaders, predominantly black, but we also had a number of white people and we had Asian people, by the way, and we had Hispanic people all marching to say, yes, black lives do matter. And so the movement of Black Lives Matter should be embraced by every human because it's a it's it's a it addresses humanity. But it, but the organization of Black Lives Matter, which is a little bit confusing for some people, is a whole different story. And what do you think needs to further change within American uh, law, politics and culture to really fulfill the, the vision of the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, you know, justice and righteousness are two biblical foundational points. Justice and righteousness. White evangelicals would, would embrace what I would classify as the righteousness side of the argument. You see, the uh, uh, abortion rights uh, or, or wrongs. Um, uh, the whole argument of same-sex marriage. They take the a righteous perspective. Uh, not that we don't. Our church is is probably on every social issue, conservative, by the way. But we don't embrace a, a right-wing political agenda. 
uh, that's different. And, and that is the justice side of the argument, you see? And so justice and righteousness together is where we really should be marching. And the church, black and white, should be leading this discussion. We should be leading this movement that it is both justice and righteousness, not just a righteousness issue. It's a justice issue as well. And so, you know, when you, when all of us saw uh, George Floyd uh, killed in the street, it's a, that's, that's just unjust. So what are you indeed doing here since you've been here? So we have been so encouraged by Israelis in general. Uh, now, not when I'm driving. I've had to learn how to drive in Israel, okay? It's a whole nother experience of driving in the United States, by the way. It's a whole nother conversation. Uh, yeah, I was in the same boat as you. I hear that. Oh, my gosh. Okay, but um, Israelis have been so warm and so welcoming uh, and so encouraged about what we're doing. First of all, Here's, here's, here's some of the initiatives that we have uh, uh, launched. Number one, we are building a media institute uh, where African-American millennials who are really being targeted on college campuses with BDS movement, uh, who are being targeted, young millennials, also in the Jewish community, I might have had also, but young African-American millennials have been targeted with very negative uh, statements about Israel. We want them to come here. And so we're, we're, we're building a media institute where African-American young adults will come here for three months and learn media, new techniques of media, new technologies of media, and, uh, and experience Israel. What we have seen is that when people come to Israel for seven days, that's the normal uh, a tour, tour, tour uh, seven to 10 days. Most Holy Land tours are seven, 10 days. By the third day, most people who have never been here are, some of the main statements they make are, I just, I just didn't know. I didn't know Israel was like this. By the end of seven days, most people who have come to Israel are uh, become advocates for Israel. They go back home advocating for Israel, saying it's just not what the media says it is. It's just not what... Uh, and, and they're specifically talking about more the liberal media, what you know the, the, the media is saying. And so if that happens for most people, millions of people, I might add, in seven days, think what would happen in three months. And so we're saying we're going to bring young African-Americans over here. Not only will they, of course, fall in love with Israel, which, by the way, we've already brought hundreds. We've already brought, quietly brought hundreds of young people here, young African-Americans over the last uh, two, three years. Uh, and they've gone back, but we want them to begin to create video content. We want them to create social media content. We want them to learn how to be effective in creating and telling the story of Israel in media, social media, mass media, and that's what we're going to do with our media institute. Secondly, we're creating a, a what we call the Kings and Bishops um, uh, uh, Initiative. Uh, I don't know if you play chess. I do. Okay. So you know that a bishop and a king are two very important pieces on the chessboard. Uh, and, and, and we see God as a master strategist. And so he can use bishops. Bishops can make certain moves that other players can't, can't make, even in South Africa. And our focus of kings and bishops really focuses on South Africa and the accusation from the South African government that Israel is an apartheid state. And we know this to be true because they came against their own Miss South Africa, who's coming here 
and, and uh, kudos to her for making the decision to come uh, to Israel, I, I think next week, actually, uh, for the uh, Miss Universe pageant. South Africa has claimed Israel is an apartheid state. Of course, Israel is not an apartheid state. And so what we decided to do, we have, I'm, I'm a bishop of one jurisdiction, Israel. We have seven jurisdictions in South Africa, by the way. Uh, so we have seven bishops in South Africa. And there are kings in South Africa who are probably more pro-Israel than, than, than I am. I don't know how that's possible, but there are some kings who are so pro-Israel. It's almost like you would question, why are you so pro-Israel? Okay, why do you love Israel so much? Israel so much? And so we decided to aggregate, to pull together kings of different African countries and bishops in different African countries who have influence over masses of people, not just the government. Yes, the government. These governments have, have, have uh, influence, but sometimes, you know, a pastor has more influence over his congregation than anybody else. A bishop has more influence, certainly, than an elected official. And so kings and bishops, so we've initiated the kings and bishops program where we will uh, attempt to influence the population that, number one, Israel is not an apartheid state. Is there racism in Israel? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, however, it's not apartheid. It's just not apartheid. Okay, and so, uh, and then and lastly, we have several things, but lastly, we want to build a two-way bridge. Uh, uh, I will say, uh, Laser, that, that a bridge doesn't go one way. And Israel has kind of, from evangelicals, been enjoying a one-way bridge. Uh, you know, one of my friends uh, who since died, Yekiel Eckstein, Rabbi Yekiel Eckstein. Yekiel sure. Eckstein, I helped Yekiel raise money, millions of dollars on television. Okay, I traveled with him to Ethiopia. I, I, I was on the plane with Ethiopians who made Aliyah with Rabbi Eckstein, right? We made a half-hour program. I bet you he raised $10 million just on the one 30-minute program. Now, he raised probably $150, $180 million a year from Christians, not Jews, in the United States. And that was a one-way bridge bringing that money here to Israel. And he was probably the biggest philanthropist here in Israel. That was Christian money. Now, we celebrate that. I helped him do that. I was on his advisory board. However, I think a bridge is two ways. And so as black Americans, we're saying, Israelis, we want you to come to the United States and tour the black history experience as your ambassador just did. Now, the new ambassador to U.S. was just it just received, Gilad Erdan. Yes. He just did the black history tour and it changed his life. That's what he says. He says, he says I just didn't know. Here is... The, the, the Israeli ambassador to the United States who says, I didn't know. I didn't know what black Americans experienced. I just didn't know. So uh, uh, my colleagues took him to um, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, where the slaves first came in. We took him down to Montgomery. He was taken to, to and, 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 and it, it, he was emotionally moved by it. You know, and he, he, just, he said, I just, I just didn't know. I just didn't know. We want other Israeli leaders to experience our history. We want you to feel what we feel. We want you to understand who we are so that this nonsense and fear that we're coming here to convert, you know, your black uh, uh, Ethiopian uh, citizens, 
will just go the way to the sideline. It's, it's nonsense. We want you to feel our pain. We feel your pain. We feel your pain of the Holocaust. We want you to feel our pain. We, we want you to feel our pain of slavery and, and why it's in our DNA. And so our two-way bridge is we want Israelis to come, Israelis, to, to experience a black history tour in the United States, just like our people come here and experience the Holy Land tour and become advocates for Israel. So those are just three things that, and so it's my job to say to Israelis, come on guys, let's do some stuff together. Okay, let's be a blessing to each other and not just we're coming here to just bless you. I think that is fascinating. The idea of Israelis starting to uh, deepen their understanding and, and really encounter uh, black history in the United States, I think, is a, is a paradigm shift and a game changer. So is there any final message you want to just leave for the Jewish people, for our Israeli listeners about your support, about evangelical Christian support for Israel, about um, your church's support for Israel? I kind of have learned to love and appreciate Israeli skepticism. <laughs> when, when, you know, when I say, my wife and I, we say, you know, we love the land of Israel, we love the people of Israel, and we love the God of Israel. And my, my wife is just known for saying that, okay? And I say it as well. Uh, skeptical Israelis say, yeah, but why do you love us? <laughs> Okay, and my response is, okay, so those who are married, if you ask a husband, why do you love your wife? If you think you have the right answer for that, let me advise you, there's never a right answer for why you love your wife. It's just, you know, why do you love your children? I mean, we can tell things that we love about them, but there's no real substantive answer for, it's, it's, it's something in your heart. It's something in your soul. Okay, it, it, there's, there's something that transcends when you talk about love. And, and our love for Israel is real. It's genuine. Okay, and why would I stay here when people say, get out, We're, you're not welcome. Why would I stay here when people say, uh, you know, uh, uh, we will kill you. Why would I stay here when people say, hey, you're not an Israeli. Uh, why are you even here? You know, one of the most common questions that we're asked when people see that we're American People see us and they first think we're, we're, we're Ethiopian Jew. And then when they realize we're American, they say, well, why are you here? Now, let me say this to my Israeli friends. If you came to America and, and you said, you know, I'm an Israeli visiting here in America, you will never be asked, why are you here? We don't ask that question. Right. It's, it's, it's rude if you want to know the truth. But, uh, but I understand Israelis. I understand your skepticism. And so because of that, look. There's some things I just accept as being here, but I want you to know we really do love you. We're here to support you. We're here to stand with you. We don't agree with everything you say. You don't agree with each other with everything you say. So why would you think I'm supposed to agree with everything you say? Uh, and so, but we're here. We love you. We appreciate you. We stand with Israel. And we are now building a bridge where millions of our people, just in our church alone, are standing with you. We want you to know we are like for real standing with you. And we want black America, 47 million black Americans, to also. Our church, the Church of God in Christ, Denzel Washington is a member of our church, Stevie Wonder. We're, we're going to name two of our, our media schools in their honor. The Denzel Washington School of Acting, the Stevie Wonder School of Music. You know, uh, we have people who are like household names, who, we, we, you know, we, we, we look to support you guys in all kinds of tangible ways. Uh, and create a real relationship. But a relationship goes two ways. 
And we're saying, come on, Israel, let, let's, let's be friends. Wonderful. So that is that is an incredible message, and and I hope and pray that that your message will meet will reach uh, more Israelis and Israelis who never thought they would be in such a conversation, and they'll also take their part in building that bridge and, and even head across that bridge as well. So it's a two way bridge. So that that's wonderful, and I really want to thank you for your time. I know we went over time, but it was such a fascinating conversation. We could have gone for much longer, and hopefully we'll have a chance to do this again. So my thanks to you. Uh, my thanks to your church. Thank you, ladies. And um, to our listeners, uh, please do stay tuned and hopefully we'll have more wonderful stories uh, coming out of this initiative from Dr. from Bishop Plummer and from the Church of God in Christ. And stay tuned uh, for our daily briefing podcast. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site.